Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, hey there, everyone. It's Stormy Warren welcoming you on the bus at Country Thunder with executive producer Troy Volhofer. Coming to you from Music City, we can't wait to chat with all of our friends in country music. Get ready for real talk about the state of the music industry, thoughts and insights from some of its biggest stars, and more than a few backstage stories from the six annual Country Thunder events held all across North America. I know I'll be sharing some great stories in a future episode. So buckle up and get ready for your new favorite podcast. Here's Troy. Hey, everybody. So glad today is one of the most exciting days that I have had in a long time because I have my dear friend here, Marty Stewart, live on Country Thunder on the bus. Marty, great to see you. Dr. Valhava. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you, my friend. Man. It's Another been a- Country Thunder. Yeah. Big shows. Big shows. It's been a while since we've seen each other. And uh, what have you been doing through this quarantine quarantine process that we've been we've been uh, into for the last year? What have you been up to? Well, the only thing different is I didn't go on the road. We, I think six shows or eight shows, I don't know, held together from March until the first quarter of 2021. We made records as a band. Uh, finished Connie Smith, my wife's 54th album. Wow. Uh, what else? We're working on our cultural center in Mississippi, working on a museum exhibit in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, a new TV show, new TV pilot. So stayed busy and got around. I mean, I haven't been home this much since I was 12 years old. And so I got a lot of things caught up that I've been meaning to do for a long time. So wow. it was a good time, actually. So, Marty, you grew up in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I did. Um, and so how did you become acquainted with the staples how did that how did you know that in 1964 uh there was a movie called mississippi burning i'm appreciative of this a, a tragic event took place in my hometown three civil rights workers came to philadelphia they called it freedom summer and these uh guys were taken to the edge of town taken out of the woods and murdered and the whole town went upside down the eyes of the world drew down on philadelphia mississippi it was a hard 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 time and where i first heard the staple singers uh there was a song called we shall overcome that was kind of an anthem to that movement the civil rights movement back then but the staple singers had a song called uncloudy day which was an old gospel song and they sounded like ghosts singing in a cotton field to me and 
and you could hear uncloudy day coming out of people's houses. It was played on the radio all the time. It was a, another anthem that went alongside of We Shall Overcome. And that's how they got into my life first was by way of just the sound of their voices. And I first met them in the early 90s. Uh, there was a project called Country Rhythm and Blues where, uh, on MCA Records, and they paired country singers with rhythm and blues singers. And the question came, who do you want to sing with? And there was no no hesitation. I said, the staple singers. And we were assigned the weight, which was a suicide mission, because they did it with the band on the last walls. But that's where I really got to know those people. And Pop Staples, become he became you know one of my closest and dearest friends. And Mavis is still like a sister to me. Wow. They say that you have a... You're like the only guitar player who can play the pops. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, but I love his playing a whole lot. Wow, that's that's a great piece of history. It is, man. You know, Philadelphia's a pretty special place, as you've uh, educated me over the course of our friendship. And you know, um, it's pretty interesting. You know, Jimmy Rogers, who's who we'd say would be the founder of country music. Without Jimmy Rogers, you once said to me, "We, we both wouldn't have jobs." That's true. When you drive across the state line of Mississippi, it says, Welcome to Mississippi, the birthplace of America's music. And you can back it up. Elvis Presley's from there. Tammy Wynette, uh, uh, Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, uh, Charlie Pride, um, uh, who would just say Jimmy Rogers. I mean, on and on and on. And Marty on. Stewart. Marty Stewart. Faith Hill, contemporary guys. Hardy, new guy, you know, from my hometown. But there's probably a, close to 100 writers, singers, musicians, songwriters, actors that come from Mississippi that are, have made a profound impact on people throughout the world. But uh, Jimmy Rogers is kind of the king of country and the father of country music, as you say. But Philadelphia uh, sits right in the east central part of the state, and it is truly coming back to life. And it, it will, there will be a cultural center called the Congress of Country Music there where people can come to study and look upon traditional country music. Well, you have a your collection of artifacts in there. I mean, I, you're you're probably one of the most eclectic collectors of country music memorabilia. They're already on this there. Planet, they're there. They're, they're, the they're in a there. warehouse there, and uh, there's over twenty thousand pieces, and they're oh, wow. strong, strong, strong pieces. And the, we have a city block we're renovating and building upon. The first phase is the old Ellis Theater. It's a five hundred seat beautiful theater that is being put back. Can I tell them about the stage? Oh, come on. Come on. The stage is the Troy Valhoffer stage. You were one of the first people to believe in this project, and you helped us out. And the stage at the Ellis Theater will be named the Valhoffer stage forever. Oh, what an honor. What well, an it's honor. an honor. You honored us. Well, it's the least we can do. Well, like you said, without uh, Philadelphia, we wouldn't be in business. So, you know, Jimmy Rogers, Philadelphia, the birthplace of it. You know, I mean, you know, got to get back a little bit to where, where we all come from and how we make our living. Well, it's good. it's good to know where you come from. It's good to know, keep one hand on the bedrock, then you can fly as high as you want to from there. Let's talk about the beginning, 12 years old, man. You're playing professionally at 12 years old? Yeah. How'd that come down? Well, um, I was practicing my autograph in the third grade. (laughs) I wanted out of there. I wanted to play a guitar. During those days you were talking about, about the civil rights Mm -hmm. strife, um, my daddy was a factory worker. And on Saturday afternoons, there was a stream, like a parade, of 30-minute television, syndicated television shows that played in our region. The Porter Wagner Show, the Flatten Scruggs Show, uh, a fellow named Del Reeves had a show called Country Carnival, all that came from Nashville. And I fell in love with country music so hard back in those days. I sat next to my dad. That was our time together and watched 
those old country shows. And I knew that I wanted to get to Nashville and play my guitar and wear those kind of clothes and be around those kind of people and be a part of that family. And I got here as fast as I could, you know, I was 13 when I signed them. Oh man, that's amazing. So, so you ended up with Lester Flats. I, well, was Vassar Clements, was that actually a job or was just, you just played with him a little I bit? I played with Vassar after Lester passed away. I was oh, with Lester. Okay. Lester gave me my job in this town. Wow. Uh, 1972. And I've said it so many times, walking in to the Ryman Auditorium, to the Grand Ole Opry, carrying Lester Flats guitar. is kind of like walking into the Vatican with the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> And it gave me instant credibility and instant acceptance into the family of country music. And after that, you know, I was with Lester till he passed away and I needed a job. And in between Lester Flat and the job I had with Johnny Cash was Vassar Clements. Wow. So, well, that, did you in Doc Watson? You played a little bit with Doc Watson too. Just you? a few shows, yeah. Right, right. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, those are like iconic figures. And you're a young guy. I mean, like, what a. I mean, you're still a young guy, and you have all this history behind you. I mean, basically, from the beginning of country music, in a lot of ways, of commercial country music, yeah. I guess, where you know we're, we're genre bending and stuff like that into other areas. So, Johnny Cash, how did you get the gig with Johnny Cash? Well, when Lester passed away, um, I needed a gig, and I was just kind of jobbing around, hanging out with buddies, playing shows until I could find a real gig. And I knew I needed, I wanted to be front and center on the stage, but I knew that I really needed some more experience before I jumped out and tried that. So I walked into a, a store, a guitar store on 2nd Avenue in Nashville called the Old Time Picking Parlor to get my guitar worked on. This would have been about 1979. And my buddy Danny Farrington was building this fancy black guitar. And I said, who's that for? He said, this is for Johnny Cash. I said, I want to go with you when you when you deliver it. He said, sure. So I knew he'd forget, but I kept up with the progress of the guitar and stayed with him on it. And he carried me with him, or I met him at this, at Jack Clement's studio when the day came to deliver. And so the door swings open to Cowboy Jack's office, and the first thing I saw was Cowboy Jack Clement was dancing with a martini on his head, and Johnny Cash was singing the Wabash Cannonball. No. And I thought, there's two of my dear friends right there, and I don't even know them. <laughs> But John stood up and shook my hand. He said, where are you from? I said, Mississippi. He just kept shaking my hand. He said, where you been? I said, getting ready. He said, I thought so. And a month later, I was on stage. Wow. And with those guys. And I've used that line about the from the Eagles song. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. From that day forward, he was my chief. And to the day we walked him to the graveyard, you know, if he needed me, the answer was, yes, sir, I'll be right there. Right. Right. So he was my boss. He was my man. So what were the shows like? So I have a little moment with Johnny Cash, and we're probably you're probably in the band at that time. I was it was about 1974, so that would have put me at about eight years old. And my dad was doing the Ottawa exhibition. He was playing the production there, and I learned how to run a spotlight to the Johnny Cash show. You did? I did. And All that's right. where I learned how to run a spot, carbon arc spotlight, the old ones. with The, the real ones. Yeah, yeah, the real ones, right? And I was a little, I, that, I could barely hand, handle it. Looked like a train thing. coming at you. <laughs> it's it crazy, right? And Johnny had just gotten out of jail at that time, I think, and, uh, and for that little bit of pills that he had brought across the border, I think. And he just, he just came back. I, I think it was 74, 73. But I think that it kind of always followed him, that, that badass mm. kind of, you know, thing of the rebel of country music. Sure. Um, so, but I ran, that's where I ran, learned I run spotlight for the first time on that show. And I, 
I was so intrigued by the fact that he had this charisma about him. And uh, it's funny because I was, you know, talking to our colleagues here today and, you know, you and I have been around a bunch and, but when you walked, you and I had breakfast one morning at, uh, at Nashville in Nashville and you walked into that restaurant and not one person did not look up from the plate. <laughs> and it was like the air of, you know, stardom, just kind of the vibe just was unbelievable. Mm. And, you know, Johnny Cash had that same thing. He didn't have to run around. He didn't have to do anything, man. He, he came out and he had that presence and you, you share that same thing. So obviously you got that showmanship from him, I would think. When I, <laughs> when I first went to work with him and, and I, I mean, I, the first two, the, the first two records I ever had was a Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and a Johnny Cash record. And the only two jobs I really ever had was Lester and Johnny Cash. So they were my chiefs way before I came to Nashville. In those days you got to play on the record? Oh yeah. Oh wow. And so, um, when I first went to work with John, we were talking, the subject of charisma came up. And we were walking through an airport. And, you know, it was hard for him to walk through an airport because everybody wanted to touch him, mm-hmm. get a picture. And he was very kind and very generous with his time. But he said, charisma is something you either got or you don't got. He says, for instance, let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a young soldier asleep sitting at you know a gate waiting to get on an airplane to go home you could just you could just read it like a book like he's going home to see his family or his wife or whatever and johnny cash sat down next to this young soldier and kind of went <coughs> and tapped him and the soldier woke woke up and there was johnny cash in his face and john said hello i'm johnny cash <laughs> and stuck out his hand he says I used to be in the Air Force, and I know how precious it is to get to go home. Just didn't want you to forget to get oversleep and miss your plane. And he got up and walked off, and this kid was, like, sitting there in a puddle. He went, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a sense of humor, too. Yeah, oh, the greatest sense of humor. Wow, that's amazing. So how did Connie and you meet? Like, how did that come down? Like, how did you meet each other? And My wife, Connie? Yeah. Well, she... There was a guy, a really cool guy in Nashville who produced lots of hit records named Bob Ferguson. He was second in command at RCA Records under Chet Atkins in the 60s and 70s. And he produced all of those Dolly Parton hits that the world still sings. He produced all of uh, a lot of Willie's early stuff, a lot of Connie's uh, landmark stuff. And he came, started going to Philadelphia, Mississippi in the 60s to explore the Choctaw culture. The Choctaw Indians have a reservation on the edge of Philadelphia. And he fell in love with this lady named Martha. And so Bob gave up everything he had in Nashville, surrendered his whole Nashville music career, moved to Philadelphia, Mississippi, married Martha, and started helping the Choctaw tribe with communications. But he also helped book the Choctaw Fair. And on Saturday nights, he would still call his Nashville buddies, and everybody loved Bob. He was a great guy. Come on down to Philadelphia and, you know, do a show for us. And we've got the budget. So Connie came to – he was one of her acts, or, or she was one of Bob's acts. So she came to Philadelphia in the summer of 1970 to sing at the Choctaw Indian Fair. She was my mom's favorite singer. We loved Connie at our house. I loved her records. So Mama took me and my sister Jennifer out to see Connie Smith's show. 
After the show, I got her autograph, got my picture made with her. And on the way home, I told my mom, I said, I'm going to marry Connie Smith one day. And nobody believed me, but I meant it. And, <laughs> and 25 years later, we kind of bump into each other again at backstage in Nashville or something and had an incredible conversation that nobody bothers. And it was just a cherished conversation. And the thing she told me, she says, I haven't made a record in like 20 years. I went, what? And she'd already made like 50 records at that right. point. And she said, would you be interested in producing me? I went, well, let's talk about it. And everybody knows you can sing. Do you write songs? Well, some. So we started writing these love songs. I started hearing her sing it back to me. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. And my heart started going, remember? And uh, I tried to outrun it, couldn't do it. And so I finally surrendered to the point. I went out and talked to my mom. I said, Mom, i got to talk to you. I said, I, I put this on paper. There's an age difference. There's kids. Uh, you know, I've been married before. Connie's been married before. It just, it's just ridiculous on paper. I said, help. And my mother is the wisest of them all. She says, she didn't answer me for a couple of minutes. She said, well, five minutes of something that is right is better than 50 years of something that's wrong. I went, got it. Wow. And so all five words go, of wisdom. That's mama. That's Hilda Stewart. Wow. And so we got married. So we've been married like 27 years now. Congratulations, man. That, that's, and you know, in this racket, it's hard to stay married that long. It's, uh, you know, all the distractions and to make it that long. That's it. And when she quit drinking and taking drugs, everything got better. In our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to go get her out of jail. In the morning. <laughs> you know, our wait friend, a minute, that was me. <laughs> our friend Terry Reed told me a great story the other night. Um, he um, was with Roger Miller. Now uh, you've just said a mouthful. Terry Reed and Roger Miller is is that's trouble. <laughs> that's trouble added up. And he's like, well, Roger Miller actually came into one of the gigs up in Canada, and he mm -hmm. and he was carrying about probably a couple ounces of, of weed, which was illegal at the time. And he goes, yeah, I came in with weed in my sock. And Terry's like, holy shit. He goes, ah, oh, that's nothing. I stayed up seven days with John Cash. <laughs> and Terry goes, what are you talking about? He goes, seven days with John Cash. We hung out, we wrote songs, and we just kept rolling. And uh, it was pretty neat. You know, it's unfortunate because the talent level, like Roger Miller was a great songwriter, one of the finest. He, he left us way too soon, I think, you know. Did you ever know Roger? Miller? I worked in his band. I cut a song called Hillbilly Rock. Yeah. That I kind of figured it was going to be, if I had a shot, that was going to be the getting on place. But there was about six months in between recording Hillbilly Rock and it actually coming out that I was dead in the water, didn't have anything to do. And we were managed by the same company, me and Roger. And so he heard that I was available and he said, I need a guitar player. I said, I'm going to be a big star. He said, yeah, I know all that. He said, but right now, buzzards are circling your career. How about being my guitar player? <laughs> so I went out and played like, you know, here and there with Roger and had the time of my life just just watching him go, you know. Was he a hard liver at the end of his career? No, he, he, was, he, was, he was pretty cool, you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. My father used to tell me, man, he said, you know, we have a lot of rock bands come through here. And, you know, I, my father toured for years. And he said, you know. You know, the the country guys can really teach the Let rock Let me guys just say this, yeah. Mr. Troy Valhoffer, <laughs> Esquire among men, and you know this to be a fact, rock and rollers, when it comes to that end of the spectrum, they can't hang with hillbillies. They got nothing they on got them. They got nothing. That's exactly and, and, when you, and when rockers think they got it, the secret weapon is moonshine. 
<laughs> it's over when you get rock and rollers in, on moonshine. They can't hang. You're 100 percent right. Man. It's crazy, you know. And that's funny because you said that, and that's exactly what my father said to me. So you know, it's it's a pretty interesting thing. But you know, I remember back when you know bands used to. You know, I remember you know Mel Tillis. Uh, oh God! All the back line underneath the bus, you know, and Mel would bust it everywhere, man. There was no private jets in those days and none of that stuff and you know conway twitty and the twitty birds what was the drummer's name um pork chop pork chop how can you go wrong with a drummer named pork chop and he used to do the intro for conway and yeah conway used to, I, I was walking up as a kid at craven and pork chop was i was right behind conway like right behind him and and pork chop gets up there and he's like hey ladies and gentlemen the greatest entertainer of all time you know conway Twi-. and he goes Jesus, that asshole is introducing me again all wrong. <laughs> I was just laughing my ass off. I mean, like, that's pretty historical stuff. I guess Porkchop left us recently. I was just having a conversation. I think about he finally that. just blew up. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he right? imploded. It's funny how the drummers always had, like, the, either they were the managers with the gun in their boot or, yeah. you know, it was a pretty interesting, different time than it is today, isn't it? So, what's your favorite thing about touring? I love, well, the road is my office. So I write more songs. Going down the highway, I had a conversation one time with Pete Seeger, yep. great folk singer. Yep. And Pete ran with Woody Guthrie back in, you know, mm-hmm. way back. Uh, everybody loves Woody Guthrie. And I asked him one time, I said, I got to ask you this, and I'm so sorry that I have to ask, but I need to enlighten me a little bit on Woody Guthrie. He said, Woody was a traveling correspondent, as if he were on a boxcar, looking to the left and to the right. And taking a look at the human condition, and then he wrote songs about it. And that's what the road does for me. It puts me in tune with people of all walks of life. I love, I've been in bands, started my first band when I was nine years old. Band life is a way of life for me. I love the sound of applause. I love the sound of, look, that spotlight, you're talking about it. And just the motion of it all. There was a train that ran behind our house in Mississippi. And I dreamed about getting on that train and riding it to play my guitar and that bus is kind of the same thing yeah, it's motion yeah yeah man i i totally can concur with that my happiest days are when i'm out on the road on that bus i mean sure. i love the bus i love bus life because it reminds me of you know we, we get to see america's backyard absolutely and it's different than than driving a car or taking a plane you don't see anything we see how people live different states it's, it's fantastic when this covid thing first started you know i, I remember hearing very early on about the truck drivers, how, you know, and I know you, you have a lot of trucks that roll, but the truck drivers were the people we once again depended on from getting things from coast to coast and what a, and what a burden it was for them just to get something to eat because restaurants were shut down. People were actually going to the side of the road, handing up brown paper sacks for food for truck drivers and McDonald's were, you know, whatever. But it remind I knew what those truck drivers were feeling because, you know, when you, when you're putting fuel in your bus, you kind of, Eye to eye with the real folks. Yeah, I call it uh, the truck stop culture, and I miss it. You know, uh, my better half. We always joke about when we're not on the road. It's like, man, we sure miss that truck. You know, truck stop culture. You know, because you know, you go in, you get you know a sandwich or something while your bus is fueling. That's right. I I love it. I and I love the people because those are the people who are making the wheels turn on this country. They're they're so important to our economy, to just basic economics and i don't think they get enough respect well i'm telling you man you know uh 
you look at uh, award shows and you know things that, that are carefully staged and presented to the networks that represent country music and that front row there's a whole lot of reality of of cool young kids that are out there but the backbone of the whole country music society is what you're talking about that's where that's where the spine and, and the bedrock of the country music fan and the heart of the country music fan that's those folks we should never forget them and um i'm telling you those those people they give up a lot to feed their family it comes from mississippi and down in alabama creeping like a fever all across the land from deep in the delta on the Louisiana shore, the people got to have it. They wanna hear some more. It's a hillbilly rock, beat it with a drum, playing the guitars like shooting from a gun, keeping up the rhythm, steady as a clock, doing a little thing called a hillbilly rock. Let's talk about your wardrobe, because you and I had this Our conversation. Lack of. <laughs> I was so like. You know, I, you hit on a point, you know, about a year ago, you and I had breakfast together and I was like, I, I, I resonated on it and, you know, and it was very apparent, you know, when you go to see an artist, you, you don't really want to see the Domino's pizza guy, you know, and, and that kind of has become a trend in all, all formats of music. Yeah. Tell me your theory on it. Perhaps I was raised uh, at a different point in time foundational but i go back to when i was five years old watching country music and rock and roll on tv uh elvis was from mississippi and elvis had an you could see a shadow on the wall and know who it was the guy on the 20 dollar bill andrew jackson that guy had a cool look about him porter wagner had a cool look little richard had a johnny cash you know keep going you know yeah. groucho Marx, just yeah. keep going but they were the kind of people when you saw them once, once they came across your radar, you knew who they were for the rest of your life. And if they did something good when they passed your radar, they were always welcome into your heart. But there was just something about the flair of those people. And before any of that happened, there was this black cafe in my hometown called the Busy Bee Cafe. All the cats, you know, were, were, they looked snappy. They wore loud clothes. They had gold teeth, some of them. And I just thought those characters were really cool when I was a kid. And... uh Last time I checked, we were in show business. And I realized that some people wearing their ball cap backwards and a, and a T-shirt out, that's as much of a costume as Porter Wagner's rhinestones were. Let's be real about it, you know. Willie Nelson's look is just as you know flamboyant as Elvis Presley's jumpsuit or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's really, I guess, about finding something you're comfortable in. I just wanted something when I was a little kid that made me look and feel like those guys. And that's all it amounted to. And I fell in love with the people that made those clothes and those costumes. They became a part of my life early on. And I love the workmanship that went into it. The craft is, is pure art. And so did you have nudie? Was nudie? Do you have any nudie outfits? Oh, yeah. The first, the, the first trip to California, I was 13 or barely 14. And I'd save two. I, I see those guys around the Grand Ole Opry wear those clothes. Where do you get those? Nudie's Rodeo Taylor's. In, in North Hollywood, California, they said, but don't mess with nudies, grouchy. There's a guy that works there named Manuel. It's his son-in-law. I went, oh, okay. So uh, Lester Flatt's band didn't dress that way. They were very like Kentucky gentlemen, and I couldn't stand that. I just wanted to look like those guys in those bands, you know, that's twinkled. So I saved 250 bucks on my first trip to California 
went in nudie's rodeo tellers and i said i want to look at that one and he put it on me it was like a size 40 and he said oh we can have we can take it up i said how much he said 2500 bucks and i almost started crying because i'd worked really hard to save 250 bucks and i felt this presence to my right and he says nudie i got it and it was manuel and manuel took the suit out of my hand he says kid here here's the deal he says my name is manuel what is your name i said marty he says, Marty, you're going to come in here one day and buy the whole store. But today you get a free shirt. So he picked out this little cowboy shirt on the rack and took it back there and trimmed it down for me. And that was the beginning of it. Wow. And But that was my first walk into nudies. And so I just kept up with those folks as time has gone on. Manuel's like a brother. You know, and we talked about Manuel earlier. And it's probably, I did not realize that he, he was at nudies i didn't know that he was the head designer at nudies wow. starting in the early 60s until he started his own store yeah he was married to nudies daughter barbara and everybody i mean rock guys country guys i mean the whole ground i mean porter wagner where did all of it do you have his gear porter Wagner? some of it you know and his i think his daughter deb has most of it but the thing i loved about nudies there we were you know it was north hollywood california so you would see uh, you know, actresses of the moment. You know, you'd see Goldie Hawn in there. And then there would be, you know, like uh, Colonel Tom Parker and Porter Wagner and Merle Haggard. And then you'd see uh, cowboy stars. You know, that, it was like the crossroads to so many cultures in that story. It was wonderful. Well, you know, I love the old history of, of, of country music and the history of Hollywood, which leads me to my next question. Uh, Ken Burns, country music. You did such an amazing job and... I just want to know how you felt about the whole process. And I mean, you really lead the pack in that whole documentary. And I think that you thank. I just want to say thank you as being in the country music business, that that was such an amazing piece of work uh, to promote country music to people who necessarily may not have known about the history of country music and where it came from and how it developed and where we are today and where we were before and how it all came to life. So how did, how did you get involved with that project? Connie's son, Carrie, Carrie Watkins. Carrie uh, taught English in Taiwan, and he, he would come home for Christmas and spend Christmas with us and go back to Taiwan and go back to work. On the way out of the door on one of his trips after Christmas, and this goes probably back 10 or 11 years now, he said, I saw Ken Burns on TV last night. And he said, the guy asked him, the, uh, the interviewer asked him, what are you working on? He said, thinking about a show about country music. I went, got it. And I wrote Ken Burns a fan letter the next day because I love his work. I've always loved his work. And about two months later, I got or three months later, I got a reply. And he sent a fellow named Dayton Duncan, who was a big part of that country music show, to sit down. And we talked. And the next thing I know, there's a knock on my front door. And it's Ken and Dayton. And we are inside the living room. So me and Connie hosted them. We had our bands come out. We cooked cheeseburgers and played country music. And the next day we got started. That show took eight years to accomplish. And it was a labor of love. And you know this. Let, let, let's balance the scales here for a minute. Country Thunder is probably the very best of what's going on at the moment in country music. It's the face value of the commercial end of country music. It entertains a lot of people. But sometimes when you get out into that zone, you know, the roots and, and the history and the empowering force that it's eternal kind of gets, you know, covered up by, you know, what's going on. So it's important sometimes for a voice to keep it in balance. And I felt like the Ken Burns show 
educated. Everybody won. The old country fan that thought they would never see anything like that, they won. The new country singer, songwriter, that will one day wake up in the back of the bus and go, I really need to know whose shoulders I'm standing on. Should they choose to go down that highway, that's a great university for them. And the scholars and the critics who have wondered whatever happened to country music had something to write about. So everybody won. And I was really proud to be a part of that show because I felt like, again, it it kind of put the eternal value of country music, the divinely ordered part of country music back into business. And I loved it. And what I loved the most about it is our culture of country music. All of a sudden, we're in the same room with jazz and baseball and the Roosevelt's and the national parks and the Civil War. Those subjects that Ken, when he turns his attention to something, it becomes curriculum and it becomes a part of everyday life in America and around the globe. So that's what he gave us a great gift in that show. It's like a Smithsonian it is. moment, right? I'm so proud to be in country music because of that. I think that, and congratulations to you because it was absolutely amazing. Well, we all won there. So congratulations yeah, everybody, everybody won. That's right. Uh, no, and Ken Burns did a fabulous job. And I mean, he's done such a great job on everything else. And it's an honor to country music to have him do something like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Thank you for being My pleasure, man. And I don't think a lot of people from, you know, not including you, but I think we really need to wake up to where we came from um i think that the industry in itself needs to wake up to a little bit of history lesson and understand what what put you on that stage and who put you there like you said what shoulders did you grow up on um i think we're missing a little bit of that but i think we'll get it back my wife connie you know a lot of people still ask the question tell me what country music is and you know i suppose the greatest answer ever given was what uh, harlan howard says country music is three chords in the truth Hank Williams says I can wrap it up in one word. It's sincerity. My wife, Connie, says it's the cry of the heart. And sometimes I think the game gets ahead of the heart and the, and the, and the, you know, the gag and, and the industry overwhelms the heart and soul of the matter. We're big business now, so that's to be expected. But there is always, as you were saying, a place for that. I love my station in country music, man, because I get to touch from – Jimmy Rogers and the old Crow Medicine show all the way up to you know the tip of Keith Urban's nose and Hardy and beyond. I get to be a part of all of it and in and out of it as I as I choose. And it's a great place to be because I love it all. Yeah, and you do it well too. You do it extremely well. I love it. You know, it's it's interesting because um and I won't mention artists' names, but artists have uh criteria of who will play before them or play on the bill. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a changing element of booking festivals nowadays is kind of like you know the artist who headlines that night um will dictate who who is on their 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 day and you know i had so many requests for you uh like one or two options and marty was always one of them Mm -hmm. and i mean it was pretty damn cool i mean and those artists are definitely trying to stay true to the form of of what they're delivering as true traditional artists in their own right, you know, and keeping it straight lined and, and you just come out there and kick ass. Man. It's hard for a, a, a new artist or, you know, as somebody that's relatively new to hold on to the heart and soul and what they truly believe in, because there's not a lot of room in the game for those sounds and those looks and those feels anymore, but I don't give a shit. 
that's what I have going for me. I mean, there was a line in my career. I went, you know what? I got $150 in two banks, and I'm married to the girl I love. I got a Cadillac that's got a tank of gas, and I got the best Telecaster in the world. And anything beyond this is gravy. And you're old enough now, you don't have to be a part of anything you don't believe in. And when we put our band together, the, the mantra became, if we believe in it, we'll pay to play it. If we don't believe it, you ain't got enough money. So, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rare, I'm, an, I'm a party of one when it comes to thinking like that. And you get left out of a lot. It doesn't bother me. But, you know, when you follow what, what you really believe at any cost, great things happen. The spurler, spur, say it for me. Spurler, the superlatives. Spur, yeah. It's a Canadian Boy accent. Canada, I just can't uh, get that. Um, Probably one of the best touring bands I've ever listened to. Uh, tell me about them. Tell Kenny, me how, how that came to reality. Kenny Vaughn, I saw him for the first time on TV, played on Austin City Limits with Lucinda Williams. And after about three minutes, I forgot to look at Lucinda. And Harry Stenson played on my records back in the 90s when we were focusing on he radio. Sang. He sang. Back oh, up God. He's, he's a great, great singer. Drummer right? and Harry's singer. a great singer. Chris Scruggs is the bass player. He's yep. part of the Scruggs clan. And it's just a, they're statesmen and they're musical geniuses. They're professors. And now that there's no Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, I'm telling you, as far as real music and real just absolute whip-ass, get out on stage and get after it. Give me one light bulb and a microphone and we will have a show kind of band. That's just superlatives. Oh, man. And the loyalty is amazing. Like, yeah. Very few lineup changes in the band. And, I mean, holy smokes, that's, that's unheard of, too. But you must treat those guys real good, and they, they love playing with Marty Stewart, obviously. Well, we love each other. We yeah. do. And um, it would be interesting. We've been on way. We've never spent this much time apart in 20 years. And so we had to make a call see who's still around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and see who, who survived. But I'm looking forward to getting back at it. We left off by making an incredible record, and actually two records. We have a 20 – song cinematic surf record that's oh, instrumental really? that's ready to go in a, rec a cosmic cowboy record called altitude that's really cool oh wow that's exciting yeah you'll like it that's great um how did you end up on the uh, steve miller tour how did that come to fruition i did this tv show on the rfd cable network called the marty stewart show we did six seasons 156 episodes i saw what the tail end of traditional country music, the way you and I were raised, you know, that old stuff and those artists. And I saw the tail end of it. And I thought we better do one of those old shows and get them one more time. Or the way the Rolling Stones went after Howlin' Wolf. Sure. And our Muddy Waters and treated those guys with that kind of regard. I said, we have to treat these people like royalty and make them sound and look great one more time. And we did that. Mission accomplished. But Steve Miller became a big fan of that show. He watched it and T-boat it. And, you know, at that time, and just, he could quote you verse and scripture of that show who was on it. And he came into a concert. We did in Idaho one night. He had a home up there and he says, I'm going out on tour. I want you to come play with us. I went, actually we did a show at the Ryman to check it out. And it worked. It didn't look like it would on paper, but the audience, Steve, his audience, they're true music people. They get it. So it worked out. I, I I never saw the tour, but I can only imagine how special it would have been. Because and I, those songs of his, man, they're like boulders. They're straight great. Straight ahead of rock and roll. Yeah. You know, and no, he's a brilliant artist. Um, I did do a tour uh, 1993 with him. He was a support actor, Brian, <clears throat> excuse me, Brian Adams at the time. <clears throat> 
And he was spectacular. I mean, his, uh, he, he had that bus that had a studio on it. I don't know if he was recording <laughs> stuff every day. I'm not sure what he was doing, but it was pretty neat. And I'd never seen that before. There were two European buses. They weren't Prevos. They weren't Eagles. You know, it was pretty neat stuff. So, But I just wanted to ask you about that because that was a, totally, a total departure. And a great, once again, crossing the lines, which we're doing right now in country music. We're crossing lines. I mean, those lines have been crossed before in the seventies with Dolly and Kenny Rogers and, and you know, the lines into the pop segment of, of listeners and genre bending. So I saw my musical future in 1973. Um, when I was in Lester flats band, there was, you remember those old college buyer showcases with kids that bought acts for their, their schools, would go into a university and stage a series of showcases. Lester Flatt's manager paid like 250 bucks to get him on a show in Cincinnati. And the bill that night was Chickaria, Cool and the Gang, and Lester Flatt. And I thought, they're going to laugh us off the stage. But we went out there, and unknowingly, there was a song called Dueling Banjos in a, in a movie called Deliverance. It was a big hit. And Lester had been playing that song in his set for years. So we did that song inside of a 40-minute set, and the place blew up. And in the course of that 45-minute show, we encored nine times. Really? And the next day, his manager stood out on the floor, and we booked 72 college concerts off of that one 45-minute set. Really? So we were rock stars the next day. And the coolest show, right off the bat, we played Michigan State University. The opening act was Graham Parsons, Emmylou Harris, the Eagles and Lester Flat, and I saw my entire musical future that night. It's like there were no boundaries; it all held together. It was kind of based around the Bird Sweetheart of the Rodeo record, but that's the way I've tried to live my life ever since. Oh, man, that, that that's incredible. Did you did you have the Beverly Hillbillies title song in your set list with Lester Flats? Absolutely, it was Lester Flats, Earl Scruggs. Yeah, I mean Lester had to he had to do it every night. It was like. That was Stairway to Heaven. That was the Stairway to Heaven of that show, you know? That's, I mean, that's stuff you can't make up. I mean, holy smokes, that goes down memory lane. And I mean, Beverly Hillbillies have been playing, you know, on TV for the last, what, 60 years? It never goes away. Doesn't go away, ever, you know? Buddy Epson, and yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm so amazed with your career. And I'm, and what is really interesting, I just have my last question for you. What's so special? About the Philadelphia, Mississippi County Fair. The Neshoba County Fair? Yes. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind event in the United States of America. People build um, cabins, they call them. And it's like the social event of the season. It's like the Kentucky Derby of that part of the world. People close their businesses and they go out to the fairgrounds. This has been going on since 1898, I think. Spend the week. There's horse races. There's political speeches. There's music that comes and goes throughout the week. But it's basically just a, they call it Mississippi's giant house party. It's like the Woodstock of county fairs. Wow. And uh, it has enough red dirt out there to supply you for the rest of your life should you ever go. Well, I think I'm going to make a trip because it was kind of brought to my attention by uh, Hardy's uh, agent. And he was like, oh, no, he plays this fair every year. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. He's been on the scene for a couple of years. But, I mean, I was like, that's really intriguing, you know. Oh, it's it's, it's, go on YouTube and take a look at Neshoba, N-E-S-H-O-B-A County Fair. And it's awesome. 
Well, Marty, you know, I just want to thank you for coming over today. And uh, we're not on the bus yet, but we're going to be on the bus soon. And I'm sure when this airs, uh, we should be, you know, hopefully back to normal or to whatever we'll call the new normal. And we'll be doing shows and you'll be doing shows. And thank you for being a part of Country Thunder over the course of my tenure of doing it. And, uh, you know, we played my very first festival that I ever promoted. It was you, Tim McGraw, Lone Star. I mean, and you were there, man. And uh, I'll never forget that. And it was a fabulous night. And uh, thank you very much for coming over and being on the show. And this is an honor. My honor. This is uh, Country Music Royalty. And I hold you in the highest regard. No, man. And we need uh, more Marty Stewart's in our world. Well, back at you, Mr. Troy Volver. One last thing. Do you think whenever the next presidential election might happen, don't you think? Williams and Ree has a nice ring to it. <laughs> we need a Native American as commander in chief. And I could, can you think of one better? Oh, no, I can't think of anyone better than Terry Ree as being the president. It would be fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Marty. You, well, the bus is rolling to a stop. Thank you so much to our guests this weekend. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.